0: The History Channel Original Podcast.
1: History This Week, August 1st, 1936. I'm Sally Helm. Berlin, Germany. The opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. At the new, massive Olympic Stadium, everything has been made to look beautiful. There's a red cinder track, bright green grass... Around the edges of the arena, thousands of white pigeons sit trapped in covered cages, awaiting the climactic moment of the ceremony when they'll be released. The sky is gray and somber. All day, it's been threatening rain. Looking back on these opening ceremonies, it's like that ominous sky is a symbol— In fact, from our modern vantage, you can see symbols everywhere of dark things to come. A German airship called the Hindenburg is preparing to fly over the stadium, pulling the Olympic flag. The following year, 1937, that same airship will explode in a notorious fiery disaster. Two years after that, in 1939, Adolf Hitler's German army will invade Poland, and the world will be drawn into war. At the moment these Olympic Games begin, in the summer of 1936, Hitler's persecution of the Jewish people and others who he considers dangerous has already begun. Hitler believes in the supremacy of an Aryan master race— And by far the most ominous symbols on this day are the Nazi salutes that the crowds raise as the Fuhrer drives to the stadium, and the swastikas fluttering everywhere on the flag of the Nazi party. Hitler enters the stadium to a militaristic Wagner march. He greets a little blonde girl in a blue dress. She gives him a flower. Then he takes his seat on a special platform— presiding over the ceremony as the athletes process in. The Bulgarians give him a Nazi salute. So do the French, and they get a big cheer. The Americans come second to last. And they don't extend their arms to the Fuhrer. Instead, they take off their hats and hold them to their hearts. It's a moment of political performance in an Olympics that is full of them. And when these moments are analyzed later in the American press, one athlete's name comes up more than any other. Jesse Owens. Owens is a Black American sprinter, a legendary athlete. And at these Olympic games, he'll be talked about as a national political hero the man who takes on Hitler and subverts his ideas about Aryan supremacy. But Owens isn't actually here at these opening ceremonies. And although his is the name that has been remembered, he's not the only Black athlete to compete. He's one of 18. Two of his Black teammates, Archie Williams and Jimmy Laval, walk at the back of the American procession right in front of the German contingent, right past Hitler himself. Today, a very controversial Olympics. How, through these 1936 Games, does one man, Jesse Owens, become mythologized? And what is the forgotten context of his storied Olympic wins?
2: Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: The Olympics are about rooting for your team. But they're also about unity, diplomacy, bringing all the countries of the world into one arena. And in the early 1930s, the world needed a little unity. It was just emerging from the Great Depression. Before that had been the Great War.
0: That's how World War I was known, because people never thought the world would see such destruction as it saw during World War One.
1: Damien Thomas is the curator of sports at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History. He says diplomacy was top of mind when the Olympic Committee first agreed back in 1931 to hold the 36 Olympics in Berlin. Germany
0: was awarded the Olympic Games after being ostracized after World War I as a way of welcoming them back into the good graces of the world.
1: But in the five years between that decision and the Olympics themselves, the political situation in Germany changes drastically. Hitler and the Nazi party come to power. They're openly anti-Semitic. Many world leaders don't believe at this early point that the Nazis are serious about exterminating the Jewish population, even though Hitler has been clear about his vision of a racially pure Third Reich. And when it comes to the Olympics...
0: Hitler sees the games as a way to make a claim for Aryan supremacy.
3: Oh my gosh, for them, this is one of the most important means of propaganda.
1: Deborah Riley Draper directed a film and wrote a book about these Olympics called Olympic Pride, American Prejudice.
3: The stakes were very high because the stakes were, I am the best nation. I am the strongest nation. For Hitler's new Third Reich. This is their debut on the world stage. So it is an international athletic competition and is an international political competition for Hitler.
1: Back in the U.S., people are beginning to wonder, should we be giving Hitler's Germany this platform? Or should American athletes boycott the 1936 Olympics?
3: The country was split on this decision.
1: The head of the U.S. Olympic Committee wants all American athletes to compete. He says the Olympics are, quote, "...an international event and must be kept free from outside interference or entanglements, racial, religious, or political." But many people counter, the Olympics are inherently political. And among Black Americans, the conversation around the boycott is fraught. There had long been a coalition among Jewish groups and African-American groups fighting for civil rights. And some prominent African-Americans, including the head of the NAACP, argued... We
3: want America to boycott what's happening in Germany is atrocious. This level of oppression is too closely related to the oppression we're seeing right here in our own country, and we don't condone it on either side of the Atlantic.
1: But on the other hand...
3: Some said go because this is an amazing chance to show not only Germany, but to show America that African-Americans are not second-class citizens. We aren't three-fifths of a human. We are human and we are elite athletes, and we can demonstrate that.
1: Dragged into the middle of this debate is a 22-year-old track star named Jesse Owens. He'd made a name for himself in college. At one Big Ten meet, he broke three world records and tied a fourth. People later called that competition the greatest 45 minutes in sports. Damian Thomas told us, Track
0: and field was a major U.S. sport. And as one of the preeminent athletes coming off of one of the most significant sports events, a lot of people were looking to see what Jesse Owens would do.
1: In the end, Owens and several other prominent Black athletes say, we want to compete. And at a meeting of the Amateur Athletic Union, which will make the ultimate decision, the boycott measure fails by two and a half votes. With that, Owens will be able to go to Berlin. And so will 17 other Black American athletes. Deborah Riley Draper has researched their stories.
3: I'd never heard of these other athletes, you know, other than Jesse Owens. And that spurred my interest in the story. And then when I discovered the two Black women, a Tuskegee Airman, a future congressman, and one of the first Black chemists at Kodak, I'm like, what? Jesse Owens had all of this Black excellence around him.
1: There was Ralph Metcalf.
3: Ralph Metcalf had been deemed the fastest human on Earth. Cornelius Johnson. The skinny high jumper that's seven foot from Compton,
1: California. Jesse Owens's roommate from Ohio State, Dave Albritton, qualified. So did Jackie Robinson's older brother, Mac. And two Black American women,
3: Tidy Pickett. She was incredibly smart. Athletic, She was like five feet, and she was as fast as they come. She was very feisty, and she was fearless. And Louise Stokes. Louise was very shy, but at the same time, she understood her own power.
1: In July 1936, the 18 Black athletes board the SS Manhattan for a nine-day journey across the Atlantic, along with hundreds of other members of the U.S. Olympic team.
2: So
1: they're on a ship. Bound for Nazi Germany, and there are no other Black Americans in their group. No Black coaches or chaperones. Just eighteen young people.
3: And the two women, Tidy Pickett and Louise Stokes, were even further marginalized because they were the only two Black women on that ship of four hundred people. Wow! Absolutely, wow! What what a courageous thing to do to step on a boat, um, knowing that African Americans. At this point in time, our, our relationship with getting on boats, didn't turn out so well.
1: The Black athletes room separately from the white athletes. But they befriend some of them, and they managed to have a good time.
3: They were just a bunch of college kids. They were playing games, they were telling lies, trying to meet girls. The usual shenanigans of American teenage boys. Um Away from home, many for the very first time, they kept trying to sneak into first class because first class had movies.
1: Fritz Pollard, who will compete in hurdles, spends the journey training nonstop Tidy Pickett unfortunately was very seasick. Jesse Owens catches a head cold and so spends some time stuck inside his room. Johnny Woodruff, a black middle distance runner, writes a letter home describing the journey,
3: and he's like, "Oh my gosh." All I can see is water. Um, there's, there's no land
1: in sight. But eventually, they do see land. Germany.
2: Aboard the Manhattan, a shipload of American athletes and officials arrive at Hamburg. The Olympic Games, their goal.
3: When the boat docks, they see swastika after swastika, flags flying everywhere. That is the welcome wagon to Germany when they get there.
1: The American athletes hadn't really known what to expect. And despite the Nazi symbolism that is everywhere, they do get a genuinely warm welcome from the German masses. Hitler had made an effort to cover up what was really going on in Germany to make it more palatable to visitors.
3: Anti Semitic signs were temporarily removed, the national papers were told not to write anything negative or say anything derogatory about Black athletes.
1: And the 18 Black American athletes?
3: They were put on buses and they were taken to the Olympic Village, which was brand spanking new, best in class. Hitler built this to be a showpiece. Tracks and boxing gyms and this facility that's incredible.
1: In some ways, it's much better than home.
3: They don't have to walk in the back door. They can actually get on the bus and and tour around Germany and sit in the front seat if they want to. They could go to the movie theaters. They can go in and out of shops. There was not that Jim Crow oppression that they were accustomed to.
1: The Olympic Stadium itself was another showpiece. Hitler wanted his Olympics to rival the glamour of the first games in ancient Greece. That's what he was going for with his opening ceremony.
3: It was a fantastic, fabulous, flamboyant spectacle of an opening Games. It is the first Olympic Games that is televised. It is the first Olympic Games where there is an actual torch that is being run.
2: A final line of runners relayed the torch, which was carried night and day in all weather from ancient Olympia in Greece by 3,000 youths of seven nations.
3: And Hitler himself, You know, comes in in the convertible in this long processional into the stadium with an entourage. And the American contingent was the second largest 400 athletes strong.
1: The Americans, some 400 strong, attract much attention, for they are the favorites, the squad of champions. The
3: Americans looked amazing. They're crisp jackets and their white pants and their straw hats. Straw hats over their hearts, and eyes right is the official American salute. They were very, very fashionable. The squad literally looked like rock stars.
1: The cannons fire, the pigeons are released, the torch is lit.
3: For the 100,000 people who were watching, it was worth the money they paid for their opening ceremonies tickets.
1: Hitler's spectacle is off to a booming start. But the next day, the competition will begin. And the whole world is watching to see which country
2: will come out on top. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: Adolf Hitler spends the first day of the 1936 Olympic Games watching the track competition and having photo ops with the winners. We heard about it from sports historian Mark Dyrison.
4: Hitler, because he wants to use these games as a propaganda moment to show off the Third Reich, very conspicuously and publicly with the World Press Corps snapping pictures and flashbulbs popping, congratulates the winners in the morning and afternoon sessions of track and field, all of whom were white, Northern, or Western European athletes.
1: But that evening is the high jump when Black American star Cornelius Johnson is set to compete. Johnson wins the gold, and Hitler is nowhere to be found.
4: He doesn't congratulate Cornelius Johnson. He doesn't go down to the medal ceremony afterwards.
1: German officials later insist that the chancellor had to leave just to beat the post event traffic out of the stadium. But the president of the International Olympic Committee tells Hitler from here on out, he has to congratulate all the victors or none of them. He chooses none.
4: The story starts there in the American press uh, about. Hitler snubbing Black athletes, and in particular, Jesse Owens.
1: This narrative fits with the general approach the newspapers are taking towards coverage of the 1936 Olympics. They're seen as German discrimination versus American melting pot. And so the idea that Hitler has snubbed Owens is reported far and wide. Owens' first race is on day two of the Games, the 100-meter dash. It's said that this race determines the fastest man in the world. The stadium is packed.
4: It's loud. Everybody from high-level Nazis to average Berliners are, are there for the Olympics.
1: Hitler sits watching in a box above the track. Owens is placed in the farthest inside lane, where it's especially muddy. He's wearing new shoes. His normal pair has been stolen by fans. And he has over 100,000 pairs of eyes on him.
0: The six fastest sprinters of the world are getting ready. Owens, America.
1: The track is made of cinder. This is before runners used starting blocks.
4: You'll see great pictures of Owens and the other sprinters, you know, digging their little starting holes at the beginning of the 100 meters.
1: Ralph Metcalf, another one of the Black American athletes, is in the far outside lane. And
2: Metcalf of America.
1: Owens explodes off the starting line. In 10.3 seconds, he's won gold and tied the world record. Metcalf comes in right behind him. The crowd goes wild. The men receive their medals as the Star-Spangled Banner plays. This is the first of four gold medals that Owens will win at these games.
2: The lanky star from Ohio State shatters all existing records as he takes the gold medal in the men's broad jump. Nearly 27 feet, an Olympic record.
4: As time went on, I think the Germans in the crowd also anticipated what was Owens going to do next. And
2: then just for good measure, Owens outruns the field. The
4: press accounts at the time described just as... Amazing electricity that ran through the stadium. Led by Jesse, the U.S. sweeps the 1936
3: Olympiad.
1: The other Black American athletes are also hugely successful.
3: John Woodruff wins the 800 meters. Fritz Pollard winning a bronze in the hurdles. Archie Williams wins the 400 meters. The American team beats the German team in the relay with Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf. All of Britain and Johnson won the the high jump. Mac Robinson winning a silver. Metals standing on the podium as people are hiling Hitler around him and swastikas waving over his head and he's standing strong, tall and proud. I would think that certainly impacted his little brother, Jackie Robinson, when he integrated Major League Baseball.
1: By the end of the games, the 18 Black American athletes had secured 14 of America's gold, silver and bronze medals. Out of 57 total, Germany wins 101, the most of any country at the 1936 Olympics. Still, the Black American athletes are crowd favorites, especially Jesse Owens.
3: There's a frenzy around these athletes in Europe. People want to take pictures with them. People want their autographs. People want to meet them. People want to invite them to dinner. People want to invite them to coffee. You know, they are buzzy. The crowd roars for Jesse. They clamor
2: for his autograph.
1: He's all the press can talk about.
2: The undisputed star of the competition was Ohio State University track star Jesse Owens.
1: The Journalists were
3: very creative in the use of adjectives and adverbs in describing the Black athletes versus the white athletes. This Buckeye bullet, this ebony streak, you can call him what you choose. He's lightning by any name. They were dusky. They were sepia. They were dark and mysterious. They were, like, running like panthers. All of this hyperbolic, animalistic descriptions.
1: The American press is certainly guilty of this. And on the whole... They try to use Owens's victories in particular to tell a story about American exceptionalism and the American dream. Mark Dyrison has studied how this happens.
4: Narratives about Owens tended to be initially framed in the mainstream white press, touting America as the land of social mobility for everyone.
2: He's setting new Olympic and world records as he its place.
1: Owens is America's hero today. Deborah Riley Draper put it this way.
3: America wants to demonstrate that it is a world power. And they want to show that they're better than Germany, of course. And so what better way to dim the light of the Nazis than to say, a Negro beat your best? And you see in the headlines, Owens takes down Hitler. Owens bests the Nazis. But a
4: Black American athlete smashes the theory of a Teutonic super race.
3: And yet... When they return to America... They returned to America, and America in 1936 is largely segregated. This is an America that does not necessarily accept African Americans as equal.
1: Even the great Jesse Owens. When
3: he returned for his own ticker tape parade in New York, he had to go into the party through the back door, through the kitchen.
1: Owens and other athletes had dreamed of using their Olympic medals to show that Black Americans deserve equal treatment. But they're still being treated as second-class citizens. And in fact, Damian Thomas from the Smithsonian told us Owens' victories actually get twisted and are used to feed a new harmful stereotype.
0: This is the moment where people began to sort of disassociate athletic accomplishment and intellectual capacity. Whereas African-Americans thought that Owens's athletic accomplishments would challenge the dominant ways that people thought about African-Americans. Instead, it challenged how
1: we thought about sports. Here's sports historian Mark Dyrison.
4: Even the laudatory white press began to craft this narrative of genetic exceptionalism. There's some kind of African sports gene, and the reason they win is not why white athletes win, not because of hard work and perseverance and grit, because they're just naturally gifted athletes.
1: Thomas told us that idea has a long legacy.
0: The idea that African Americans are biologically superior is one that athletes still confront. And you'll see most African Americans push back against that because there's often this unstated B clause, which is that you're inferior in more important ways, namely in intellectual capacity.
1: So Owens's wins get used in these harmful ways. And meanwhile, the success of other Black American athletes gets erased. Deborah Riley Draper says the message to the Black community is...
3: We will allow you to have one. One is all you get. Because if we see more than one excelling, it kind of breaks down the whole theory of being inferior. When African Americans are demonstrating that they are excellent, Um, that is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow then and now.
1: Many of these athletes go on to lead remarkable lives. Jimmy Luval, who won silver in the 400 meters, gets his PhD, works at Kodak, and eventually directs a chemistry lab at Stanford. Archie Williams becomes a Tuskegee Airman. Ralph Metcalf serves four terms in Congress and helps found the Congressional Black Caucus. Tidy Pickett becomes a teacher and then a principal. There's a school named after her in her hometown of Chicago. But these athletes are not really able to build on their Olympic fame. Many of them leave sports and forge paths in other worlds, always in the face of bias and discrimination. Mark Dyrison says when he's teaching his students about the history of sports in American society, he often thinks about the life of Mac Robinson. Jackie's older brother.
4: Here's a guy, but for a few tenths of a second, would have been a gold medalist. He continues to be one of the best sprinters in the United States, gets his degree, comes back and can only find custodial jobs. That's the norm. Even for the supremely talented Matthew Mack Robinson was, you win an Olympic medal, you're an American hero, you showed Hitler, now go sweep the streets of Pasadena,
3: California.
1: America wouldn't recognize Black athletes like Mack Robinson and Cornelius Johnson and Louise Stokes unless it could take something from them. Even Jesse Owens, when he returns to the U.S.
4: He discovers that a lot of these promises in terms of making money are pretty hollow. And he's got a family, you know, he's got a wife, he's got kids, he needs his support.
1: Some white Olympians had gotten big-time Hollywood or promotional deals, But not Owens. He tries to make some money through speaking gigs. He opens a chain of dry cleaners. He owns and operates a black baseball team. Sometimes to drum up publicity for the team, he entertains the stadium crowd by racing against a horse. It's dehumanizing. He is, after all, the world's best sprinter. But he feels that he doesn't have a choice. He addresses this later in a 1971 interview. People said it was degrading for an Olympic champion to run against a horse, but what was I supposed to do? I had four gold medals, but you can't eat four gold medals. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And if you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our new email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Jeremy Schapp, whose book, Triumph, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics, we consulted for this episode. Thanks also to William J. Baker, author of Jesse Owens and American Life. Also, be sure to check out Deborah Riley Draper's book and film, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, for more on the 18 African American athletes who competed at the 1936 Olympics. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editors and sound designers are Pat Burke and M. Lewis Gordon. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKaymee Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.